Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a free and focused life. Today's guest is my good friend, Glenn Murphy. He's also my martial arts instructor, and we podcast together also on his podcast, which is called Sistema for Life. Sistema is a Russian martial art form. That's where I met Glenn, and I've been studying with him for oh, close to a decade now. So he has probably punched me in the face more than anybody else. So that's quite a distinction. In our first conversation years and years ago, when I understood nothing about acoustics and we recorded with a handheld recorder in a glass cubicle in a library, we talked about Sistema and how certain martial arts can positively impact our lives and our philosophies and our neurology. Uh, then we talked a couple of years later about the new science of stress, because Glenn is not just a martial artist. He's also a scientist, a science writer. He has written, I think, over 27 books about science, explaining science, including the most famous one, Why is Snot Green? For the past several years, Glenn has been developing and delivering programs to individuals and organizations on stress proofing, using cutting edge science based neurobiological tools and insights to help people uh, inoculate themselves against stress in the body and not just in a cognitive way. And the most recent thing he's been asked to do by lots and lots of organizations is help people with their smartphone addictions and with their um, addictions to technology in general. So Glenn has developed programs called Tech Proof, and today we talked about it. So Glenn's view as a martial artist is that if there is a threat, you need to take a martial arts approach to that threat to understand what it is, to be able to define it, contextualize it, and then come up with a plan and learn how to implement that plan to protect yourself, to, to self-defense yourself against this technology that even Steve Jobs, the uh, spiritual father of the iPhone, never saw coming this uh, ubiquity and this thing that, according to Glenn, we most of us handle over uh, a thousand times a day. And those are the normal ones of us who don't have any sort of addiction. So in this conversation, we're going to talk about this epidemic of smartphone addiction and within the context that I'm very familiar with and very comfortable with impulse control. Before we get there, a couple of things. First of all, a quick reminder that this podcast is 
supported by those who can afford it and free for those who can't. So if a couple bucks a month is something that won't break the bank for you and you align with the mission of this podcast, you can find us on Patreon and become a monthly supporter. Second thing, uh, Derek Harrington, who was in, on Plant Yourself podcast number 252 with his wife, Cassie, is featured in this week's Runner's World magazine online, a great story about how plants and running got him from overweight, sick and depressed to the beast that he currently is. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. If you want to um, listen to the episode, it's plantyourself.com slash 252. Third thing is Josh's mom and brother, Josh Lajani's mother and brother have released a cookbook of whole food, plant yourself, no oil, low sugar, low salt recipes inspired by their Louisiana, Mississippi heritage. So if you have ever, ever had a hankering for Cajun food or Mississippi food, the uh, jambalayas, the uh, the etouffees, the crawfish boils, all that stuff, and you want to be able to do a whole food plant based version of it with the proper spices and the proper techniques. You can find this book on Amazon Kindle right now. It's uh, $2.99. is $2.99. And it's called Pure Ambrosia. I would consider it a personal favor if you would go support these folks who have done so much for their community and are doing so much for the plant based world and for human health and happiness in general. And once you've uh, downloaded and looked at some of the recipes, a review would be great as well. All right. So that's about it for business. Let's talk about breaking our addiction to those little devices. Maybe you're listening to this podcast on one of them right now. We're not telling you to throw them away, but just to not have them control your life. So let's talk about tech proofing without further ado. Glenn Murphy, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Pleasure to be here in your power shed. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't do too many recordings here, so it's uh it's always fun. That's nice that you've got the green wavelengths here coming in through the window. It's it's the ideal environment. Yeah, no, it was, it was scientifically designed to make me as uh, uncrazy as possible. <laughs> well done. And so it seems to be working. Yeah. <laughs> um so I wanted to talk to you today about you have a project and a uh workbook and workshops you do called Tech Proof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, there's been a lot of, of chatter about, you know, technology, specifically smartphones. And, yeah. and I see this in the clients that I work with mm. um, in that, you know, we're trying to get them to do different things with their lives and mm. things take time, right? Yeah. To spend, you have to spend time shopping differently when they don't know how to uh, prepare food. It's going to take longer to, to do it if they're unfamiliar with it. We're yeah. asking them to be able to exercise or maybe do a meditation or a stress proofing kind of uh, activity. Yeah. And when we dive down into it, people have are spending hours a day on their phones. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to kind of get a sense from you about what what tech proofing is and, yeah. and how it works. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was born out of uh, my dual interest in kind of like the science of human wellness and health. Uh, which I've been about ever since I was a school age, I guess. I studied genetics and immunology and the effects of uh, stress on human health when I was at university level. Um, and my lifelong kind of study of martial arts. And, and what I found was that people who studied martial arts tend to have better what's commonly known as discipline, but it's probably more accurately known as impulse control, right? And um, they have more of an ability to kind of um, see something, experience something, and then express a different reaction to the way that most people would. Um, so tech proof is really about 
gaining the knowledge, the awareness, and the control that you need to understand kind of how compulsive technology, specifically smartphone-enabled uh, internet technology, has become, um, and how kind of all-pervasive it is in our lives, and how that's kind of driving us towards bad choices, be they like staying up all night binge-watching Netflix uh, instead of getting a healthy amount of sleep, or... Um, or buying things that you had no interest in buying, <laughs> being marketed to you 24-7 um, through the means of kind of social media and stuff like that. Um, and just kind of the insidious way that technology has been used to target us. It's not like television, right? It's, it's a step up. Um, the, the goalposts have moved a lot and the game has changed. And we're on the losing end of that. And I'm by no means the first person to talk about this. You know, there's people like Tristan Harris and with time well spent, a formal former Google exec who's been talking about this. Um, there's former execs at Facebook. I believe, um, was it uh, Zuckerberg's founding partner in Facebook has just said that Facebook's too big and we need to break it up. It's too dangerous to democracy and other things. And so mm. there's lots of people making these noises at the moment. But what I wanted to kind of bring to the milieu was like some concrete measures, some things that people could actually do um, rather than just read about it and think about it in, in order to kind of inoculate themselves against this insidious creep of technology-directed behavior. Right. Well, so that goes very well with the theme of plant yourself, which, which one, one of the meanings of which in my mind when I started the podcast was we have to plant ourselves against the mainstream. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. we're going to get carried away. And the, mm. the mainstream, there's no, there's no person out there who wants you to be sick and miserable and addicted but yeah. the the function of the system yeah is to is to produce that and i, I yeah. love how you're putting this technology and tech proofing within a historical and a psychological context yeah. of impulse control because yeah. you know i remember I don't, I don't i can't remember a time when impulse control wasn't a problem yeah like talked about like you know how many hours kids watch television yeah you know you know 10 15 years ago mm -hmm. um so where and you're talking about martial arts, yeah. So maybe let's start with impulses and impulse control from like a, a neuroscience perspective, okay? Because you ha you know you have that perspective, so let's yeah. like let's let's start with first principles around what are we talking about? Um, I mean, mostly we're talking about different parts of the brain dealing with how we make decisions, and everything to do with impulse control is essentially. Um, kind of managed by the midbrain. It's managed by the hypothalamus, by the amygdala, um, by the bits of the brain that deal with emotions, first and foremost. Right? We like to think that we're making good decisions, we make logical decisions, um, but most of the research has borne out the fact that about 90 to 95% of our decisions are usually kind of emotionally driven, and then we come up with a little narrative that we weave over the top afterwards to explain away why it was that we bought the Krispy Kreme instead of the salad, or whatever, or, or spent four hours on Netflix instead of um, going for a walk with your wife or something like that, right? Um, so we tend to do things that make us uh, feel safe uh, or less uncomfortable, right? We have, we have a, a striving towards trying to eliminate discomfort in our lives as much as possible. And of course, you know, there's an evolutionary basis for this. Um, our ancestors, the more they avoided discomfort, um, typically the, the longer they stayed safer in, like the, uh, in terms of uh, extreme discomfort in the environment. So if they could avoid starving to death, then they would probably not starve to death. And they could avoid the discomfort of um, extreme pain or like falling from a height and then breaking something then they would and then that kept them safe in general terms but what's happened now is that nobody's starving to death everybody's got all the food they need in the local supermarket you don't have to chase down a, like a frozen meal it's just there waiting for you um, 
and we've kind of sanitized our lives in a lot of ways. We don't we don't have the kinds of threats that our threat response system evolved for. Um, so in the context of that, our brains look for kind of new sources of discomfort, perhaps lesser sources of discomfort, and we're becoming kind of averse to even those. We're becoming averse to the, the sensation of boredom, of sitting at traffic lights for more than like two minutes with nothing to do. So we flick on our, our, our phones as the solution to that boredom. So or, is, so we, or, or we, you know, discomfort of like not owning the newest thing or waiting too long or the touchscreen not being great on my phone. And so we're marketed ways to get ourselves out of this discomfort all the time. Mm-hmm. And that in, in and of itself is not new, but the technology and the way that it's giving us 24-7 access to solutions or preferred solutions to these things um, is changing the way that we interact, I think. Uh-huh. So, so are, are you saying that, that there's a circuitry in our brain that is actively looking for discomfort to avoid? Absolutely. Yeah. And so in, in the absence of serious discomforts, yeah. it's just going to glom onto whatever? For the most part, yeah. I mean, that's, in, in wider terms, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's more accurately, it's looking for threats. It's looking for potential danger, right? Um, and in a person that experiences discomfort all the time, there's the way that we perceive what's a threat and not a threat is different, right? If you live in you know, Papua New Guinea and you make your own clothing and make your own shelter every day, you're used to kind of rough surfaces on your skin and biting insects and just kind of mm. uh, feeling hunger in between, genuine hunger in between meals, not feeling a bit peckish and then just mm. reaching into the cupboard or something, right? Um, so the bar for what is and isn't uncomfortable is set very, very high. So if somebody like that experiences what they feel is deep discomfort, then probably there's something serious going on and they'll react to that in, with aversion and moving away from it or they'll try and solve the problem. Um, but our both bar for discomfort in the Western developed world is typically quite low, um, and especially in higher socio- socioeconomic groups, right? Um, so our brains are, are reacting to pretty day-to-day discomfort as if it's like an existential threat. Right? Um, and you can see this in kids. You know, it seems like the worst thing in the world if you take their phone away. They're like, oh, you've cut off my entire social, social lifeline and my connectivity and everything that could you know, get me friends and your access to your status and ego and all those things. Right? Where in reality, all we've done is taken them back to like pre-1990 or something like that. Right? So, it's, so I think what's necessary is kind of like a, a large-scale reset of what we define as uncomfortable and comfortable. Um, and this is just one of the ways of looking at it. And in terms of martial arts, that's one of the things that martial arts does. Like the, the way that we practice is to create not just defensive tactics and movements and thought patterns that get us out of trouble and help us avoid trouble, but also to expose us to that potential discomfort so that if it happens to us, we don't just freak out and go into a ball and get kicked over and over again, right? Or make a terrible decision and just grab onto something and then have that be become worse, right? So there are physical corollaries to these psychological tendencies that we have. And, and I think um, from my experience, the way that people train in the martial arts and in military, it, it's like a form of stress inoculation that gets us physically to understand the, the tendencies we have in our minds, right? So we can't really understand ourselves until we're under direct, proper physical pressure. Um, and so martial arts is one way to practice that. Um, and so I've been interested in where's the confluence between those two things, between what we know about stress and the neurology of stress and what we know about what works in martial or military training. Mm. Okay. So we're walking around in this environment in which you know everything is 72 degrees, you know, 42% relative humidity, mm-hmm. uh, no biting insects, mm-hmm. and we're gradually, like even that is not good enough, right? right? So, so mm-hmm. now, now I have a momentary 
spasm of boredom mm-hmm. or I'm about to open a spreadsheet and, and I, you know, I, have, I haven't done my, uh, my April um, expenses. And right. It's almost the middle of May. And so yeah. like every time I see that on my calendar, I get a little yeah. icky, <laughs> icky feeling. Yeah, I just don't want to do it. Yeah. 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 Like, like this is the thing that if I spend 10 minutes will mean I get thousands of dollars in my bank account. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, so when you talk about making emotional decisions as opposed to rational ones, yeah. there's no rational way that I could justify putting mm-hmm. this off for two weeks. Yeah. Um, but that's a slow logic circuit that will be telling you that, right? That's, yeah. that's the ability to plan ahead and to reason that in the end you'll get more benefit from that. But that's an abstract logical mm-hmm. argument, right? Um, compare that to, or I could just fire up this other window with like this game in it, or I could fire up mm-hmm. this other window where I'm, I see whether or not my friends are liking my photograph or my social media post. And that gives you an immediate hit of, hit of do- dopamine, which your brain remembers from the last time you got one of those. So it weighs mm-hmm. up immediate happy or long-term might be happy concept. It's like mm. immediate happy, right? It always goes that way unless you've got some other mechanism for kind of circumventing that. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how, how modern technology and maybe specifically uh, smartphones yeah. uh, are a different beast than, than anything we've seen before in their ability to, to deliver dopamine and to, um, to make our threat mm. perception hyper-focused on it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's been there's been a lot of work on this and a lot of different arguments as to how helpful or unhelpful handheld devices can be. But if you look back to kind of the first arguments about when radio or television came around, right, as a broadcast technology and a, and a form of passive entertainment, right, something kind of passive that you can just sit in front of and absorb. Um, the arguments were like, well, it's going to deaden people's brains. They'll just sit there glued to it and, and they won't be doing things that are productive in everyday life. But that didn't quite come to pass, right? And people will spend a certain amount of time in front of the TV and then they'll get bored with TV and they'll go somewhere else to do something else. Um, and there's actually a cost that comes to a friction cost of you know going home, switching on the TV, plopping on in front of you, or you have to pay bills to get the TV. It's not free, right? Cable networks cost money and all that kind of stuff. And even now, right up to well, Netflix and Amazon Prime, I guess, are a slightly different beast. But there's, you know, there's some effort required to get that entertainment, and you have to scroll through to find things that you want and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the key difference, I think, came when we went from just internet-enabled um, passive entertainment, of which like Facebook and MySpace and things like that were a form of. Right? They didn't really come into their own until they made their way onto a phone. There was a revolution after the iPhone that even Steve Jobs didn't see coming. He just thought the iPhone would be an awesome way to stick together an MP3 player and a telephone so people wouldn't have to have both devices, right? They could carry them around. He had no idea that this additional feature of, yeah, yeah, let's make it browse the internet as well, was going to be the defining feature of the iPhone. That's what it did. And there's no friction cost now. You've got the entire world and all its potential entertainment in your hand or on your desk. It's literally inches from you. And it's just so easy to tap the button and see it that it's almost harder not to, right? It's easier to, to look at the world around you, which probably isn't as exciting in any given second than it is to flick the damn thing on, which is why when you look at people with diagnosable compulsive internet use disorders, they're touching their phone up to 2,500 times a day 
2,500 times, right? And even people who don't have diagnosable compulsive internet use disorder, like everyday folk in America, are touching their phone between 750 and 1,200 times a day. Now, if we fundled anything else 1,200 times a day, we'd either be put in prison or a psychological assessment, right? Or we'd, we'd assume that was an addictive substance and we needed to legislate it in some way, right? It's, it's not normal behavior, like, to touch something 20, yeah, 1,200 I'm tr- I'm tr- times a day. I'm trying to think about the things I used to have in my pockets. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, keys, wallet, pen. Yeah. Notebook. Yeah. Like, you know, wallet four times a day. Sure. Keys six, ten times a day. Right. But the phone, like, a thousand times a day? Yeah. And it's, it's partly because they're multifunctional devices, right? But very few people, like, uh, under the age of 30 now actually wear a wristwatch, right? I have one on, right? But people are like, well, why do that? It's a unifunctional device. It's ridiculous, right? Um, but for me, it means that I don't have to look at my smartphone as often, yeah. right? Plus, I'm on a motorcycle a lot of the time. <laughs> it's dangerous to pull the smartphone out while you're on the motorcycle to check yeah, the time. Don't, don't, don't text and chop. Yeah, yeah, that's never a good idea, especially on the bike. Um, so... It, because it's, it does so many things, right? It, it's our camera, which we carry around with us all the time to capture moments of our lives that, God forbid, we might forget or something mm-hmm. like that, right? It's our timing device. It's our calendar. It's our scheduler, right? It's our personal assistant, in, in a sense. And it's also our extended friendship network. It's our people who text, people who email, and people, the you know, withering percentage of people who still actually call people on the phone and talk. They're all in there. It's all in one place. It's all in one device. So if it doesn't represent one thing to you, it will represent three others. There are so many reasons to pick it up, and there are so few reasons not to. So you've actually got to come up with alternatives. And I see in this some parallels with your kind of work that you do with behavior change and like wellness in people's lives is that you can't just subtract things and say you don't get to eat all what used to be your favorite foods anymore you have to replace them with like delicious other foods right or you have to give them meal plans or you know recipe books and and show them that there are alternative foods they could be eating if you just say no crispy creams bad slap them on the wrist right that will last for about as long as their enthusiasm for your initial program lasts and then they're going to fall off the wagon real quick and they're going to go back to the thing that gives them the dopamine hit so it's not enough just to say don't look at your iphone bad child smack them on the phone you need to do so and even these programs that just advocate and i've seen these right there's uh, cal newport's digital minimalism in the recent book that's got some great stuff in it but this this injunction just to be like reclaim your leisure and just put the phone away it's just like okay but how You've, you've really got to identify what it is that you're getting out of the phone first and then switch that reward trigger. Otherwise, you've, you've got no hope, basically. You've got to keep going back to it. It's going to be very, very difficult. Yeah, so I, I was talking with, uh, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with Josh Lajani, yeah. and I was asking him about mourning the loss of things that were really valuable to him, like his hunting and fishing culture. Hmm. And the culture around the food that he ate, you know, that his grandmother made for him. Like, you know, he yeah. had to let go of all that stuff in order to become the person that he is. But he, he grew up in New Orleans, right? So it's all delicious fatty Cajun food and stuff. Or? Yeah, yeah. In the, in the bayou. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. New Orleans were the, the sophisticated city folks. Okay. Know. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this incredible, you know, culture of consumption of, you know, whiskey and, and fatty foods and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And I says, like, how did you you know, let go of it. He said, yeah, absolutely. I had to mourn it. I had to, you know, grieve the loss, but mm. I didn't give it up. I started doing other things that eventually had to crowd it out. It was yeah. simply incompatible. Yeah. So it's almost like, yeah, if I put my phone away, mm-hmm. now what am I going to do? Am I going to start like playing hangman with right. little pieces, like the things I would do, for, you know, if I just start doodling? Yeah, Victorian games, a hoop and a stick. That's all you need to have fun, young man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
yeah, that that and and the fact that you know in, in the old days that you know that everyone was doing the other things. Yeah. So you know now if I go off my phone, hmm. I am a different species. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not in the not in the prevailing culture anymore. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I, and I found this, it's especially hard with kids. You know, because sometimes parents try to set boundaries for their kids in terms of the amount of screen time they get per day or whether or not they get to look mm -hmm. at devices at all. Like our kids do not have handheld devices, are not allowed them, and we try not to even show them things on handheld devices because it's then it kind of seems to highlight the appeal. Like, Daddy's got one of these and it's fascinating. Yeah. And then we're telling them, but you don't get one, not for you. Right? If they just look at that and see that that's a big boy grown-up thing, therefore I should probably be interested in it. So they get limited like little snippets. They can watch like half an hour of like a little kiddie series or like once a week as a treat, we might watch an entire movie or something like that, right? Um, but generally speaking, we try and limit them. But that's not the norm, right? Other kids, if they're staying around somebody else's house um, or during the day or they're having a play date or something, some parents just leave TVs on constantly, right? It's just mm. like it's a companion. It's in the room and they'll be watching things. Um, and so it creates kind of difficulties in that in the, they'll they like to fit in. They'll want to kind of see the things that other people are seeing or do the things that other people are doing. And the same thing is true for adults. If you go on a kind of a a severe technology diet and you're like, I'm not going to do Facebook anymore. I'm taking all my social media apps off my phone. Um, I'm, I'm going to try not to respond to like messenger threads, IM threads or anything like that. It's just eating up my time too much. If you want to talk to me, call me on the phone. Um, but we've kind of trained ourselves not to want to do that anymore at all. Right. Um, so then you have to kind of retrain all of your friends not to expect responses on instant messaging or retrain your friends that you, you're just not on Facebook so I'm not going to see that thing that you put on there and if you mm. want to come to an event you've got to tell me offline that the event is coming is happening so th there's kind of an, a, a cultural aspect you're right you have to kind of retrain people around you and, and get them to be on board with what it is that you're doing and that's not easy mm. so there's the devices themselves that um, you know said, weren't designed by Steve Jobs to do what they're doing now yeah but there are an awful lot of companies that are specifically doing things to make yeah. us addicted. Can you talk about what some, what some of those things are? Yeah, I mean, essentially, the most big companies like Facebook and Google and Instagram and uh, Twitter have well, maybe not Twitter so much. They're, they're t taking a slightly different stance of late, but um, most of the companies that rely on advertising for a revenue model have a branch which is dedicated to behavioral psychology. Like literally uh, people who have graduated from universities with doctorates in, um, in understanding people's impulses and where they come from. Uh, and they'll literally use that like the dark arts, right? They'll go in there and try and physically think about ways that they can keep people, keep people's eyeballs on the screens for longer, right? So, for example, something like Snapchat, the whole idea of like having a, a Snapchat, um, what do you call it again? Uh, it's not a chain story. Thing. No, it's not a story. It's, um, you get like a little fire logo. When if somebody, if you send somebody a Snapchat picture and then you reply right away, then it starts a little thread. And the more times you do that, it's like, mm. uh, oh man, the word's escaping me now. Not a chain, mm. something like that anyway. Okay. Um, so basically it bounces backwards and forwards and they, and they give you little, little notifications saying, congratulations, you managed like a 30 in a row Snapchat thread. Like, so this is, this is like the old days when we play catch yeah. and we try to get as many before dropping it. Exactly, like that. So you're rewarded for, for consistently making it go backwards and forwards again and again and again and again. That's specifically designed to make sure that you're just in the app more time. Right, and therefore exposed to the app and things that it might offer and stuff like that. Um, and Facebook is the same kind of thing. Like Facebook, used, when it first was introduced, had the 
uh, didn't have a like button for starters, right? And they figured out that when it was just all on transmit and Facebook was just um, like a, an online directory of your friends and what they were up to, right? Um, when they just displayed that, people would scroll through for a little while and then it would be like, yeah, I guess I got enough of those pictures and those updates of people telling me what they want for breakfast and all the things that everybody did in the early days of Facebook, right? Um, but it wasn't until they introduced the like button that engagement went way up. Um, because there's this kind of illusion of interactivity. Like if I liked your post or I disliked it or later on it became funny, ha-ha, or sad when too many people's funeral announcements were liked, (laughs) they started to kind of pass those out a little bit. Um, Once you've done that, then you're interacting with it and you're having a a fake conversation right, with the person. You're you're liking it and it goes back and forwards. And the interactivity, the engagement with that app went up skyrocketed after that point once they introduced the like button um, and the notifications which came later right of like have people liked your picture or somebody has posted posted something used to be in a little blue symbol in the top right um, and it used to tick up the same way like eight notifications nine notifications but a blue symbol with a blue number on, a, on the same background it wasn't until they made it red like a red alert notification that people actually started checking those. It would just be there with like 50 notifications of people like, oh, that's interesting. But when it went red, there's this um, kind of primal signal to us. It's like, oh, I better check that. It might be an emergency, right? You never know what Facebook emergency might have emerged in the last 20 minutes, right? Um, So, and then people um, started engaging with that enormously. And that's how it happens. It's not always by design, but sometimes somebody will introduce something and then it creeps uh, it explodes engagement and then there's whole teams of people saying look at the amount of engagement and how much more time they've been spending with their eyeballs on this and how much more advertising they're looking at and the revenues going up all of these different things right and so sometimes people just capitalize on accidents but some companies put more kind of directed effort into that than others some are, are directly attempting to manipulate you to spend as much time on the app as possible now they might kind of give like a throwaway nod to like we're trying to make it healthy engagement and we're trying to like encourage people to do different things but the general line from facebook and and and, and google and other companies youtube and other companies like that is that it's just a tool right it's just there it's neither good nor bad you decide how to use it but that's the thing unlike television we're not deciding how to use it anymore right we're getting push notifications uh, we're getting prodded into these little dopamine hits and fear of missing out on all of these things. And that's different to television, mm-hmm. right? You well, might fear that you missed the last episode of Game of Thrones, but not that much. You're not prodded yeah. that it's coming on like in the middle of what you're doing, right? Yeah. So it's a different, it's the, the game, the rules of the game have shifted. Right, well, it's yeah. also, it's not just the PhDs, it's mm. the PhDs creating the artificial intelligence yeah. that is, you know, it's, bas- it's basically the system now has its own logic. It's like, you know, yeah. the, like Eliezer Yudkowsky's paperclip Maximizer. Maximizer that destroys yeah. the universe to make yeah. paper clips. Yeah. That we're destroying the universe to get eyeballs on the page. And so, yeah. th- you know, all these different experiments, like the infinite scrolling. Yeah. Right? Like when you scroll down, then, then more things start appearing. Yeah. Um, or, you know, the, on like, you know, Netflix and YouTube. The follow on video. Has Watch the follow on video yeah. automatically. And you have to figure out how to turn that off. Yeah. Uh, so, so critically, they're all set to on by default, right? So you have to know what's going on and then you have to opt out. So you have to make a decision at some point as to what utility you're getting out of that thing. And most of the time, they're designed so that you don't actually stop to weigh up the utility. You're just like, well, I like the app and all the things that come with it. I'm not going to just get rid of the app. Um, therefore, I like YouTube. And then you yeah. get all the other things along with the, with, uh, you know, along with the baby, you get all the bathwater. Kind of like yeah. that way, right? um, so it, they're kind of designed so that you're afraid of just getting rid of the whole thing. And now 
the whole smartphone is designed kind of the same way. It's just like, well, we could kind of scale this back, but look at all the things I get with my smartphone. If I decide to downgrade from like an iPhone to back to like an old burner, like a flip phone or something like that, then yeah, I could just get texts and phone calls again. But if I couldn't browse the internet, now I can't get Google Maps. And I really like Google Maps because I'm terrible at navigating and if I go, I go to new cities a lot. And so you're so terrified of losing that one functionality that you won't get rid of the whole thing, right? And there's some companies, interestingly, that are trying to fix this now. There's, this, um, there's one that I came across uh, in the research for TechProof, which is called the Light Phone. I'm not getting any money for this, by the way. So no <laughs> plugs and I can't... Um, guarantee its utility yeah. or anything like that but the whole idea is that it's it's a it's a very very light um thin kind of iphone size and weight even thinner actually than an iphone uh handheld device which does phone calls and it does texts and that's all it does right and it yeah. and it's uh, and yeah, it goes right, in your back pocket think... and it's even thinner than a phone but they cost like 400 bucks you know yeah. for, for something with very low you know a nokia phone a nokia 2210 could pro could probably do that too and it cost you like five bucks second hand off of uh craigslist right. or something. i think i read about them that they're, they're yeah. coming out with version two where they felt like they needed to add uber yeah so, so that's what i was going to bring up next right so the bike phone is a great idea for purists who are like, I'm just going to go totally like back down to this. But the very the very um, fact that they had to come up with a version 2.0 that has Uber, and I think it has like some other, it has like a Google Calendar on it, maybe as well, oh. or something something like that. I can't remember. They added a couple of functionalities. The very fact that they had to kind of go mission creep on that mm. and be like, we're purists. This is going to be an iPhone for Buddhists, right? Mm. <laughs> we're going like 100% minimalism all that kind of thing and then they had to backtrack because they're like eh, people might not pay 350 bucks for the and then not have this functionality and maybe if we just add one or two more things then it's going to get people in and that's what's going on right and it's difficult i'm not saying it's an easy problem to solve but i think the core thing here is that you have to realize that you're making a decision and that inaction right doing nothing not being aware of it and taking no action at all is also a decision just to go with the flow. Um, and the decision then is being made by Facebook or by Google or by the advertisers or who, whoever else it is. Um, and what I think is really interesting about um, martial arts is that it's all about giving you more choice. It's all about increasing your options, increasing your ability to think and function under pressure, right? And so I see a direct corollary here like between those two things in that what we're trying to do is in the face of all this psychological pressure and all these kind of things that are fighting for our attention, right? We're feeling embattled by all of these things in our environment. Um, we need tools that make us stop, take stock of what's going on, and then make informed choices about how we're spending our time and how we're spending our attention. Hmm. So it reminds me a little bit of the early days of like prospect theory, right? Hmm. Um, you know, the behavioral economics people who were talking about like if you. You, the, the context in which you make your decision will determine what kind of decision you make. Yeah. So like, you know, Richard Thaler with Nudge was like, let's, let's, let's create what he called choice architecture sure. to nudge people to the right thing. So if, if the choice is, okay, the phone's in my pocket and it just buzzed yeah. and I'm going to pull it out, like if, that's, if there's no context to it, if I'm not thinking about what else am I missing, yeah. what else could I be doing, mm -hmm. what is the impact of, you know, we haven't even talked about the privacy sure. issues of, yeah. the, you know, like if you if you had told me twenty years ago, would you like you know an interactive map? But the the world's largest company, world's largest advertising firm, is going to be able to know where you are twenty four seven. Yeah, right. Like I was no way. Not but, not just know where you are, but know where you've been, right. and know the, the places that you like to go, so right. that they can cross market. Yeah, right. And to to know my mood based on the the lilt in my step yeah. or how slowly I'm I'm moving. And as soon as once we get into wearables, yeah. Right, the sky's the limit. Yeah. Um, 
where was I going with this? That, 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 that we're not, that maybe martial arts is, is, is a, a way to give us back a context for mm. like, what do we want out of this life as opposed to what do I want out of this moment? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in, in a sense, it's kind of like creating an additional framing effect, right? It's, a, it's giving you different buffers. It's like, well, look, here's the range of possibility. It's not, do I delete this app or not delete this app? It's not, do I um, you know, change the notifications on this app or not? And it gives you kind of a wider context for the, for the range of things that you might do or the range of ways in which you might be spending your time and the range of ways in which you might react to things, right? And it gives you practice at just doing nothing, everything, or anywhere in between. So I guess we're not specifically talking about people who should solve their, their tech addiction by doing martial arts, right? I right, mean, yeah. So what is the, uh, you know, what do you recommend? What is tech proof and how, you know, what are steps people can start to take if they're you know, sufficiently alarmed yeah. by this conversation or by other things they've read? If they're, yeah. you know, I find it's kind of a little bit helpful to get pissed off yeah. At at the ways in which sure. you know, a little bit outraged at yeah. the ways we're we're being manipulated. Yeah. But once once we're there, what can we do short of like you know, I, I my phone is on black and white mode instead of color. Yeah. Right. Like, w- you know, but what else? Well, I mean, so the way I see it, it's like a form of psychological self defense, right? And if and if you're serious about learning self defense, you have to know what it is you're trying to defend yourself against first and foremost, right? So that's knowledge. Mm-hmm. And in martial arts, you might be like, okay, somebody might be able to grab me by the legs and pin me on the ground. And if I don't know what to do about that, I'm at the mercy of anybody who can climb on top of me, right? <laughs> and beat me up. If I don't know, if all I can do is box, then I'll be kind of stuck if that happens, right? Um, or if somebody really knows how to box and they know how to punch me in the face, I probably don't want to get close enough in order for them to do that. I want to keep my distance or I want to try and use different tactics, right? So just the sheer knowledge of how dangerous people can be and the range of things they might do is what informs maybe which martial art you'll try or which tactics you'll kind of gravitate towards, like kind of that way. So that's step one. Um, and in Tech Proof, that's all about finding, finding out how we got here. So we talk about that we didn't get here on purpose, right? We didn't um, accumulate these things gradually. We didn't say, okay, I'd really like a navigation app and then I'd really like a social media app that helps me engage with friends halfway across the world that I probably would have lost touch with in high school, let's face it, if we didn't have this thing, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, I did lose a touch in high school. Yeah, damn it, they found me again. Yeah, <laughs> kind of this way. So, um, so it, it's about looking at the real danger of what's happened and the fact that it's kind of crept up on us um, and taking stock of what we stand to lose, right? Uh, it might be our health, it might be our time, it might be our productivity, um, it might be the money you might have made doing something else that might have made you money instead of spending you know, four hours on social media every day. And by the way, three and a half hours is the average American time browsing um, on their smartphone per day, three and a half hours, right? Which is a lot um, that way. So first, the first step is knowledge. It's get some idea of the scope of the problem and what it is you're trying to defend yourself against. Step two is awareness. It's like, okay, I know in theory that I don't want to get punched in the face or I don't want to get thrown on the floor and have somebody climb on top of me. Um, But how do I feel when that happens, right? And how vulnerable am I to that? You might have kind of an idea that you could just avoid that kind of trouble and be like, I don't need to learn how to fight because I'm a nice person, I'm a pacifist, I don't believe violence is ever the answer, so I can just avoid it wherever I want to. Um, But if you go into a class and then have somebody else force that 
um, situation upon you, right? It, whether or not you want to get punched or whether or not you want to get pushed on the floor, um, that happens. And then you experience the fear and the terror and the helplessness that comes with that. If you don't know what you're doing, then you're aware of how vulnerable you are and what kind of pressing need there is to really learn how to solve this problem. Um, and in TechProof, it's about doing uh, a very honest assessment of how you spend your time, um, about uh, kind of tracking the number of times you'll pick up your phone per day, tracking the amount of sleep you're getting or losing, respectively, as a result of um, smartphone technologies, uh, and then kind of taking an honest stock of where you are on the, com- on the spectrum of absolutely fine to full-on compulsive internet use disorder, right? And then being very honest and sort of saying, yeah, all right, maybe I'm not addicted, but I'm on the path here, and that's me, right? And, and being very, very honest about your choices and what you tend to do. Once you have that awareness, then you can move on to control. Uh, what can you do to change the situation? So in a martial art, you might look at five, six different ways that you could escape getting punched in the face. Five, six different ways to escape somebody kneeling on top of you and throw them off. Um, in Tech Proof, you look at various different ways that you can restructure your day, that you can restructure the amount of information that's coming in. You can change your information diet and you can restructure kind of the triggers and the habits that lead you towards bad decisions apropos technology. So that knowledge, that awareness, and that control um, are key. They're all key components. If you all you have is control measures and somebody says, you're spending too much time on the internet, you should just try to look at your phone no more than an hour a day, right? Mm. If you just do that, but people are unaware of how, how long they actually are spending on the internet, right? Then they'll just continue to do it. And if you ask them, how long did you spend browsing Facebook yesterday? They'll say, oh, probably about 30 minutes. But if you look at like a tracking app in the background, something like, a, uh, what's it called? Um, There's Freedom. Yeah, Freedom, one of those. That's a really good one. Or Apple has their own mm-hmm. one now as well. That's, yeah, uh, screen Time. Screen Time, that's one that runs in the background. If you look at that, it might reveal that you're at three and a half hours. But to you, it seemed like half an hour. Because you were just scrolling and moving and all that kind right, of stuff. Well, we all have that experience of yeah. fun things take yeah. no time at all. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so without awareness or without some sort of metric and measurement, there can't be any control, right? Um, and then you have to look at what you're measuring, right? Maybe you're measuring the wrong metric. If you're just trying to figure out how many hours you're sleeping per night, maybe you're doing pretty well at sleeping at night. Maybe your tendency isn't to look at screens right before you go to bed and to check email or check Facebook first thing in the morning. Maybe you do pretty well with that. Maybe you have a different routine from childhood or conditioning in some other way, but maybe you waste time during the day or maybe it's in every little snippet of potential boredom that you might experience throughout the day and you're still racking up three and a half hours a day on Facebook, right, somehow. Mm-hmm. So you have to know when what you're looking at and whether or not that's relevant and so that requires the knowledge, right? So I think these three things, um, they're not just kind of set out there and you look at them once. You have to empower yourself with knowledge and then develop some awareness of where your deficits are, and then look at control measures, trying to apply a few. And then in the spirit of science, you kind of go back around again and say, all right, what did that tell me? What's the new knowledge? What does the, the, the data tell me? What, how I feel, you know, what I'm experiencing? And then maybe you have to shift control measures or add some or subtract some or apply different ones. So it's an ongoing process. You don't just do it once and then you're tech proof. Mm-hmm. Any, any more than most people switch their diet once and then they're fat-proof, right? <laughs> that doesn't happen either, right? It's an ongoing process of development. Yeah. So I noticed like the thing that was bothering me the most, like I, I don't think I spent, you know, hours on Facebook and like mm. all evening, but I'm at line at Costco yeah. and there's four people in front of me and so I pull out my phone yeah. and I handle a couple of emails yeah. and I get an idea for a video I want to do and so I put that in yeah. and like there's nothing 
it felt like there was no cost to that. It felt like a responsible use of my time waiting in line. Yeah. But then I noticed like over time, I was less able to sit and work for yeah. an hour. Yeah. That, that, that there was there was some sort of erosion of of my ability to focus. Yeah. That I then attributed to the phone. So sometimes the the symptom and the cause are not obvious. Yeah, absolutely. And it and it's tricky. And I'm not advocating that people just go full luddite and just throw their phone in a bucket of water, douse it heavily and move on uh, this way, because there are things that we get from technology that help us, that genuinely do make life more efficient and perhaps more enjoyable. For example, I wouldn't want to get rid of, um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't want to get rid of Google Maps, but I wouldn't want to get rid of the potential for um, kind of satellite navigation entirely, right? Accurate satellite navigation, not old school rubbish, doesn't update on the traffic or new builds within the last five years type satellite yeah. navigation that we got with early car stuff. Um, so. But then, you know, I'm not addicted to Google, Google mapping, right? So that's not a problem. I don't sit in my spare time, fire up Google Maps and look for new roads to Mandalay, right? right. I don't do that. Right, but so, at, the, at the same yeah. time, in 2002, when we got yeah. our first navigation system in, in our Prius, yeah. um, I stopped learning how to get around without it. That's true, yeah. Like, like, I feel, you know, when I drive around now and, you know, occasionally, like, lost satellite reception. Yeah, then you panic. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I can feel like... My heart, you know, oh, oh damn, I, I wish I had a, a, a gazetteer or a, a map in the glove compartment now. Sure, absolutely, yeah. And so one of the things we do in the TechProof uh, workshop is that we basically roll back the clock to pre-1990 and say, you know, look at all these technologies we have now, list them all out, and then what did we do before these? We must have survived somehow. We did okay, right? And, and what did we do before Google Maps? We had A to Z atlases, right? We had road atlases. Like, uh, we had kind of large-scale maps that we might look at before we go, right? We kind of plot the landmarks and the turns and all that kind of stuff. And Google will let you do that. You don't have, there's a difference, you see, and this is one of the things. So Google Maps has all of these functionalities. One thing it can do is that it can tell you how long and how far it is between where you are and where you're going to go. There's nothing wrong with that inherently, right? Uh, another thing it can do is give you different potential routes, some that might avoid highways or traffic spots or something like that. Again, nothing inherently wrong with that. Right? Um, you might even get a top-down view so that you can see some of the viewpoints along the way, or you can list the directions as a list, as if you were writing them out for somebody else in text, like turn right when you get to Crawford Dairy Road, down this way, blah, blah, blah. None of that, I think, is inherently bad um, in terms of understanding, in terms of eroding your sense of direction. The, the key pro step comes when you enable turn-by-turn, because turn, mm. then you're outsourcing your awareness, you're outsourcing your decision-making, to a machine, which is there telling you to go left, turn right, even if it loses signal and gets confused and thinks the car is pointing the other way and sends you the wrong way, right? Or while you're staring at it and trying to figure out which like, road it's sending you down, you lose track of the road. And yeah, so like I've had that experience where I've, I keep making the same mistake. Yeah. Because I'm, and you know, when I would navigate with a map, yeah. I would make the mistake and then I would learn from it. Yeah. But somehow I've, I've lost the traction yeah. in my mind to learn from mistakes that the car makes. Yeah, exactly. So to give an example today, on the way here, we went. Uh, I went to look at a, like a house that I was thinking about buying that's uh, in nearby Chapel Hill, right? And I drove from my house in Hillsborough. Um, but I looked at the listing and before I went and I tried to map it and I realized just a quick cursory top-down glance at Google Maps seemed to show that it got most of the way there and then there was a suspicious dotted line and then I zoomed in and it had like 
me walking across three people's land or something or it looked like right over somebody's house on this dotted line to finish off the route towards the thing and I'm like this can't be right and then I looked uh, in more detail and I emailed the realtor and sort of said can you send me directions because I suspect that I can't get all the way there and they said here's the directions you have to go a slightly different route by the end of it you had to go a different road and then um and then come down a gravel path that wasn't really listed on there right mm. um and had i not known that i would have driven to the appointment got close and then google maps would have had me driving around and when that didn't take me directly to it and i refused to get out of the car and start walking it would have sent me another way back and i could have gone backwards and forwards in a kind of a crescent shape indefinitely missed the appointment not seen it but just because i had that like one minute of forethought like i'm not convinced that it's going to take me all the way to this house right then I already mapped out the turns, and by the time I got there, I went directly there, and the, and the realtor showed up late, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the other way. So just that one step of being like, I'm not going to outsource all of my decisions to this thing because it's not helping me, is, is weighing up the thing, the technology itself in terms of utility. How much is it giving versus how much is it taking away? And that's the key kind of control measure that we use in TechProof. For everything that you have, be it a smartphone, be it satellite navigation, be it Facebook, be it LinkedIn, whatever it is, you weigh up in a very conscious way, how much is this giving me versus how much is it taking away? And if the answer is it's taking a lot more than it's giving, then you go Amish on it. And you're like, all right, I can have a computer in my house for business, but I can't have like a home computer just to play games on. Or um, I can ride in somebody else's car to get my eggs to market, right? But I can't own a car because that's going to count down, uh, cut down on my um, reliance on my community, right? That's mm-hmm. an extreme example so, of, of utility as a, as a means of weighing up technology. But we can do the same thing with our phones, right? We can do the same thing with um, small divisions in technology. So the answer to the Google Maps conundrum might be keep Google Maps or keep Apple Maps or some variant of it that's maybe not collecting so much privacy information. Um, and then disable turn by turn. Just don't use it ever, right? You just use Google Maps the way that you would in ATZ before you got there. Look at it, look at the route, and then you just plot the route, right? And you can keep it on that top-down view and watch the little dot like going its way along the path. And, and then that keeps you your head up and you're looking for signposts, you're looking for landmarks, and you don't lose anything from that. You've just got a, an accurate A to Z now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you do the same thing in sequence with all the apps on your phone. You get rid of ones that are just completely taking up your time and giving you no utility. Um, you keep the ones that you feel like are giving you use, but you also look for opportunities to minimize their functionality and, and strip down just the bits that you need out of them, right? So there's this idea of pure utility as a, as a means for weighing up what you keep and what you trash. Mm-hmm. Now, earlier you talked about, like, don't go Luddite, but now you yeah. mentioned go Amish. Yeah. Like, there's a big difference between Luddite and Amish, isn't there? Even, yeah. Although most people would think of Amish as, yeah. you know, as Luddite, as, as against technology. So yeah. what do we learn from the Amish? So the, the Amish have this, so people you know, tell jokes about the Amish, and there's, you know, if, you, if you look up, and I did um, for fun during the preparation for TechProof, like if you Google Amish technology, uh, especially if you flick it to images, it's pretty hilarious. So you get um, you know, Tesla-looking cars being drawn by a horse or something like that, right? Or you know, um, like a, horse, a horse-drawn private jet or something like that. Um, but in, in reality, the, the Amish aren't against, they're not like pathologically against technology per se. They're just suspicious of, of the effects that it might have. And they function under this, these rules called the ordnum or the ordinances, right? And each little district um, has, a, has a few elders who once every six months, I believe it is, have a meeting and they'll decide what's within the ordnum and what's outside of it. Um, and that might be any new technology that's coming around. For example, for the longest time, you couldn't use mechanical tillers 
like to um, in the fields, right, or me uh, mechanical like soil processing and stuff like that, because it was looked upon that it might deny the young people the benefit of hard work, <laughs> you know, hard, boring, backbreaking work and that kind of stuff. Now that's softened a bit, and people are like, yeah, but we can till a lot more land and we can sell more things, and then the community benefits from that economic growth, and our young people can learn hardship in a different way, right? So that's kind of mm -hmm. taken out, and it used to be that you couldn't. Um, even ride in a car you couldn't have anything it used to be all horse-drawn buggies and just horses but now uh, and it varies from district to district um, there's still mostly an injunction on owning a car you can't own one because it makes you too independent of your friends um, and it's too easy to go like beyond and without the village and other places like that um, but you can ride in somebody else's car for transporting cargo or going someplace that's going to be productive so you kind of weigh each new technology um, on its own merits, right? And, and I say you, I think the only downside of this is that there's a couple of elders in the village that decide it absolutely, and you get to chip in. So basically, they'll usually make an ordinance saying, you can't use this, and then every six months, people come with appeals at like a village hall meeting, and then they might, they'll make exceptions. So the Amish aren't like the Luddites. The Luddites, for, you know, this term is bandied around a lot. They were actually... Um, weavers, textile weavers in uh, 17th century England who were afraid of the new mechanical weaving machines that came about, right, or early 18th century, I guess. Um, and the problem with that was is that it was allowing unskilled weavers to mm. do the work. And so they were terrified that, well, I have this craft, my father was a weaver, my father's father was a weaver, that we do all these things. And now the craftsmen are going to be put out of work because any old idiot can sit there and pull a lever and turn a crank and turn out like you know, a tapestry or whatever it's awesome, textiles or whatever it's going to be. Um, so they were so afraid of this change and how it was going to push unskilled labor up that they, in the middle of the night, would smash up weaving machines and they actually had armies and they would drill by, by the moonlight and all that kind of stuff and had companies of people who would meet in secret and then they would set fire to factories. And they didn't actually manage to get very far before they were brutally oppressed by the British government who then made it a crime punishable by death to destroy machines, which is kind of amazing, right? Huh. Uh, kind of this way. And it's not too... You could kind of imagine a point at which somebody with enough power in this society might kind of decree the same thing. Like it's a crime punishable by 50 years of imprisonment if you block off a major communication channel, right? You destroy like the, I know, the uh, fiber optic cable that's going into a whole district because you might endanger them for emergency signaling right. or something like that. Or, or yeah. just, you know, for people who want to hack the iPhone. Sure. And uh, jailbreak it and put Cydia on. Sure. Like I think that's against the law or yeah. against, the, against the terms that you signed when you bought the iPhone. Yeah, like, against so the we, terms, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So like we don't own our, our, we don't own the things we think we own. Yeah, exactly. So there's lots of kind of things like that. But the point is that the Luddites were just terrified of something and what might be, right? So mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, they're, they're, fears turned out to be unfounded, right? The, the factories, I mean, and you can argue about the relative benefits of industrial living versus agrarian and all that kind of stuff as well. But the factories created a lot of employment. Um, their sons didn't have to spend long hours of training in a, in, a, in a craft. Lots of them could go in there and work in the factories and the factories created more better things for the local economies and the towns grew up and they got access to more resources. Poverty was reduced somewhat, at least for a proportion of people. So lots of good things came out of mechanical weaving machines, right? Um, but that's not what we're looking at here. We're not saying that inter the internet is evil and smartphones are evil and we just need to smash them all up because they are the work of the devil, right? That's not what we're doing. We're looking at them and, and more like the Amish and saying, we accept that technology can have a place, does have a place in our society, but we're not going to accept wholesale everything that we're being fed. We're going to weigh every single instance up 
in on the basis of its utility, not just to us, but to the society, like what it's doing to the community. And I think that's not what's happening right now. There's nobody looking out for the community. Individuals, maybe they'll just make a selfish decision as to whether or not they're going to go on and off Facebook or whatever they're going to do. Um, but there's very few groups advocating for let's look at what this is doing to entire schools or look, let's look at what this is doing to entire towns, right? Because um, we're on new ground here. It's all happened too fast and we've been running to catch up with the technology. Right. right. And when you think about community, I think about all these you know, apps and companies that have started up to provide services. Yeah. And now it's easier to get an Uber or a Lyft yeah. than you know, to ask a neighbor for a ride. Sure. Um, you know, now we can have TaskRabbit yeah. and people doing things for, for us. You know, it, it, it feels like very prosthetic. Yeah. Like um, that no one company is trying to destroy the fabric of our, of sure. our communities. Yeah. But that's the net effect. <laughs> yeah. Is that everything, everything's easier with Amazon. Right. Yeah. So I'm not going to shop at local stores. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and it's having a huge effect. And it's quite apart from the, the effects on physical health, um, it's having massive effects on mental health, right? It's, it's been, there's a pretty much direct correlation um, between the advent of social media on smartphones and a massive uptick, uptick in suicide and depression rates in, in young people, right? And people under the age of 20, like a massive, massive correlation. And of course, you can point to lots of different things with that. And you could say, well, lots of other things have happened in that time. But if you look at the metrics, there's just a massive increase in the sense of isolation and loneliness. And that's what it's really creating. The more we're ironically like connected to people with these kind of half relationships via Facebook and social media and text threads and stuff like that, the less we actually seek out the real relationships. And so it gives us kind of a little dopamine hit and kids us into thinking that we have family in a social network. But what we really have is kind of a pretend one that's only really half viable. Right. And the people that you really care about within that network are probably people you'll meet face to face and talk to anyway, right? There's very few people in that extended network that will go out of their way for you if you were like, you know, if you're terminally ill or you had bereavement or something happened, right? Um, so you kind of know within that network who your real friends are, but we maintain this extended network with the feeling that we're doing well. But the more people we have in that network, you have like three, 400 people, we're servicing all those relationships at a very low level at the expense of the real people, the six mm -hmm. or seven people who are right there in front of us. And it might be your kids, it might be your parents, it might be your brother or your sister, it might be your work colleague who's really been there for you. And you're spending time you know, checking likes and responding to, uh, responding to comments online instead of actually doing things with those people. And then we complain we have no time and we can't go out with people and we can't do this and we can't do that because we've used up three and a half hour days servicing relationships with people we don't really care about that much. Yes, yeah, it's like the smartphone is like the M&Ms of food, right? Kind of, yeah. It's, it's, it's these little dopamine hits. It makes everything else... You know, so sitting down and actually having a conversation isn't as exciting, right? Because I don't have I don't have fifty different things going on at once, and I'm yeah. not right. You know, I'm not you're, you know, there's not little red notifications appearing on your forehead that, yeah. that make me want to yeah. find out what you're thinking. Yeah, um, it's the quick fix, right? And um, and again, coming back to parallels in like martial arts training, like you see these things on uh, on the internet saying I'll make you a you know deadly self defense moves so like five self defense moves that can make you unstoppable in any fight and apparently you can learn them by you know giving the guy 50 bucks and he'll send you some videos you can watch him doing it and then you can defend yourself against anybody and anything it's it's the it's the 
promise. It's the snake oil of the new generation, right? It's the promise of if I if you just get these things, it's the quick fix, and then you won't have to put the work in, and then the job will be done, right? And it's the same thing with this. The, the smartphone kids us into thinking we don't have to put real work into real relationships. All we have to do is flick a like button, and that mm. is the same as calling somebody up and asking them how they're actually doing. It's not, and it yeah. never has been. And I wonder how much of this has to do with you know, thinking about martial arts on the one hand and the yeah. kind of martial arts we do, where sure. you know it's like heavily contact based. Yeah. And the smartphone is is part of the problem that the smartphone kind of takes us out of our bodies. That we're we're sort of disembodied. We're just in our heads, and even not even not even in the you know the embodied part of our heads. It's, yeah. it's um, we're in the higher cortex the whole time. We're planning and reasoning and flicking around and stuff like that a lot of the time. But yeah, I, I think yeah, that's a huge part of it. Um, I mean, ever since the development, um, you could argue that from television onwards, this has been happening. Right, there's more of a tendency to be sedentary and have passive entertainment, and then just kind of shift all of our awareness to our eyeballs and just and that's pretty much all that's happening it's just coming through in through the windows here and mm. that's all that's happening um to you know addictive gaming and stuff like that as well right no one of these things is inherently evil on its own um that way but if you put them all together if you're spending your whole day jumping from wake up look at the iphone to check emails check social media posts and then maybe do the same thing over breakfast, right? With your awareness in your eyeballs and staring at the phone and everything that's out there. And then you get in the car and then like, you know, flick on, maybe you flick on some music, but you've got satellite navigation as well. And your awareness is there in your eyeballs as you drive to work. You get to work, you fire up a couple of windows and your awareness flips between spreadsheets and that you might or might not want to deal with right now with last month's expenses, right? Um, and maybe another open window with social media or LinkedIn, or maybe you've just constant email updates because you can kid yourself you've been productive when you shuffle those around, right? right. All those things. And then you drive home and then you, you're exhausted. Maybe check a few more emails. Most statistics show that, you know, the average American checks his last email work-related at like 9 or 10 p.m., right? So we're all doing these ridiculous 14-hour days now, essentially, this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you you know, you roll out the day with you know, a couple of episodes of Game of Thrones or whatever it is that you're into, right? Now, I'm I'm not saying Game of Thrones is terrible. I'm not saying that necessarily like LinkedIn is terrible or checking email is terrible but the sum effect of that is that you spend all day long just absorbing things through your eyeballs and you you might as well not have a body you might as well be a brain in a jar that's being transported from bed to work to car to back to the sofa again right and so it's it's not really a surprise then that um that we're getting health related issues that relate to the to sedentary living and immobility and the lack of awareness of our bodies and stress related pain in the neck and the back and stuff like that if we've got no awareness of anything below the neck why should it take care of itself it's not gonna well that reminds me of when i'm at costco and i'm Mm -hmm. like when i now that i don't use the phone like i have a rule i don't use the phone uh my rule is when i'm out i it's it's called uh, dumb phone yeah. So, right. you know, I have a 2000, I have an iPhone, but I act like it's 2003. So sure. texts and calls. Yeah. And then when I'm traveling, I allow, mm-hmm. you know, the you know, Lyft app yeah. and maps and mm-hmm. the weather app. Okay. Like, like that's, you know, that's pretty much it. In my, yeah. In my, but so I'm at Costco, I can't pull the phone out. So I'll, I'll pull the phone out of my pocket, yeah. realize that I've done it, put it back in yeah. and realize that there's people around me. And, you know, not necessarily from a paranoid, like someone's going to jump me, 
mm. perspective, but there well, are. That's possible in Costco. It's possible, <laughs> but there there are energies yeah. around me, and there are things going on. Yeah, and that the intelligence, you know, and if and if my eyeballs are the only thing that's taking things in, or just my head in general, like I'm hearing and seeing. Yeah, I'm like there's there's body senses. Yeah. that I think are crucial to our survival. Yeah. Like, you know, we'll do things where we'll get blindfolded or yeah. people will come up from behind us. Like we can sense things yeah. with our bodies when our attention sure. is allowed to to reside there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, yeah, and, and that brings up a, a great point about it's not just about the things that you do. You could argue, like you said, that Costco phone check is like, well, what else? What else am I going to do? Start a relationship with somebody in the queue or with the teller or something like that. It's like maybe you might not be looking to do that, and you might feel like flicking out those few emails might be a more productive use of your time. But it's the tendency, right? It's the tendency to take out the phone and check it that becomes a habit, right? So you could say like, well, oh, maybe I'll only pick my nose when nobody's looking. When you know, I mean, I'm in the car yeah. and that kind of stuff, also like, I'll get away with that. But if you do that, the chances of you not picking your nose all the other times deplete rapidly, right? You'll probably find yourself picking your nose and you subconsciously you didn't know, and your girlfriend's staring at you from across the table <laughs> in a posh restaurant, and you're like, oh, right. <laughs> so we, we become, like, our habits become our character, right? Yeah. So, like, so if your character is the sort of person who, when you have um, 30 seconds free, they immediately start trying to take care of business on their phone, then that's who you are. In, in any context, you might be queuing at Costco, you might be like a posh restaurant and your girlfriend goes to the toilet and then comes back again and you're like, oh, well, I've got a couple of seconds yeah, well, instead I've of had, soaking up the ambience and the other things yeah. that might be happening. I've had the urge to check my phone while I'm coaching people. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, they can't see me, I'm on the phone. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, right. and yeah. like, and it's not because it's, you know, I'm not committed to helping them. It's not because I'm bored. Yeah. I've, I've had more than one friend go to the bathroom while I'm in a conversation with them. Like, uh, and that's, that's an auditory conversation where they'll be like, you know, sitting there and they, suddenly there's a lot of kind of heavy breathing on the phone. Like, eh, and you're like, are you on the toilet? And they're like, yeah, I was just you know, multitasking. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm Heaven knows how many people are doing that while they're texting or, you know, at least, at least social media. Mute when you flush. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like poo tube. That's what we call it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Basically that way. But it's, bit, but that becomes a tendency, right? And it's, and so you've got to look at the, the, again, the bigger context of what's going on. And, and that's the parallel with martial arts. You look at your, your character as a person and like some of them take those character traits off the shelf, like the, the character traits of a, 15th century Japanese samurai. They're like, okay, we embody loyalty and courage and perseverance and all of these things. And you kind of borrow it as a, as a set of ethics from somebody else. Um, ours is a bit different. Ours just asks you to explore what it is that you're already doing, um, to take account of your own shortcomings and your own failings and uh, your own weaknesses. And just to first accept those and second, to try and work on them a little bit. And every day you try and be a, a bit better as a person in terms of character. And to me, that's fundamentally incompatible with ignoring your body um, be, being unaware of things and just going along in this kind of digital flotsam that's being poured into us so i think it's it's a powerful counteracting tendency to train something like that to train some form of awareness and, and maybe other people use different things right you might use yoga to that extent you might use meditation mindfulness to that extent but you've got to know why you're using it right and um, so if you meditate great um, you might just be trying to empty your mind to give yourself a rest once a day. And that's, there's some usefulness to this. Um, but you could also, like, when do you practice? If you just practice first thing in the morning and then you forget about your meditation and you go about the day checking your phone, or the, as soon as you jump up from your meditation position, you flick up your phone, right. then what was the use in that? You increased your awareness only to um, put it on the shelf again, 
right, to forget yeah. about it. And if you do yoga and you just treat it like, oh, okay, twice a week I go to this class and I'm I'm embodied, I'm in my body and I'm breathing and I'm stretching, I'm doing these things. And then again, you jump straight out of there and back onto the phone and doing those things. And you're not getting all the benefits. You're not getting what it's designed to do, which is to teach you about yourself. That's the purpose of meditation. That's the purpose of yoga. And arguably, that's the real purpose of martial arts. So what I'm trying to do is create the martial art of self-awareness um, as it relates to stress, as it relates to technology, as it relates to kind of poor income, pulse control across the board. Um, and that's what one of the things Tech Proof has set out to do. Right. So it's almost like we can use these uh, smartphones as you know, things to, to, um, to build our impulse control muscles. Yeah. Right. Like, so I feel it in my pocket and like, or I know it's in my bag. Yeah. Like I get the impulse yeah. to check it. And, mm-hmm. and so here I get, you can't extinguish an impulse unless you have the impulse. True. Yeah. Right. So to know that I have this impulse and then to say, okay, now I'm going to yeah. feel my feet. I'm yeah. going to imagine breathing up through my perineum, down through my feet into the ground and ground myself. Yeah. That actually feels better. Yeah. You know, 10 minutes later, I'm happier I did that sure. than spent 10 minutes on Facebook. Yeah. Or even to recognize kind of the internal pattern of what restlessness feels like or what boredom feels like or what the fear of missing out feels like. Right. If you don't know what that feels like inside your body and you feel like emotions are just things that happen to you, then you're always going to be just a slave to them. Right. It's like, well, I couldn't help it. I was bored. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help it. I felt restless, given the, or yeah, I was stressed. It I was stressed, so I had to do this. It's like, no, you didn't. Yeah. Stress is a pattern of physical expression within the body that happens from the neck down. There's, there's a concrete series of symptoms that 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 uh, describe stress, right? If you understand those symptoms, you feel them, and then you do things physically to mitigate or erase them, or at least downscale them, then you probably won't feel like doing that stress-directed thing anymore. And if you understand what boredom feels like, you can sit there and go, Oh, wow, I'm bored. Now, how would I choose to spend my time? Right? Am I going to be bored? I could do that and let myself daydream and maybe I'll have a great idea or something. Or am I actively going to be like, I don't enjoy being bored right now, but I'm going to solve it in a way that will make me feel better in about an hour's time. And you seek a solution that's not just flip out the phone. Right? And if we can kind of get used to that, those feelings and understand ourselves a little bit better, then that's the way. And and just as kind of a little bit playing devil's advocate to that idea of we need the impulse, otherwise we can't figure out how to get rid of it, right? That is true. Um, but I think over time, if we've been practicing the opposites for a long time, if we've been practicing picking up the phone every time we're at a traffic light or um, checking our phone every time we're in the supermarket, sometimes we can't expect ourselves to get there right away, right? Mm. And, and we should maybe be honest about who we are and be like, you know what, I have a pretty addictive personality and I'm pretty driven and I have to get things done all the time. I'm kind of a control freak. So if I know the phone is in there with 50 unread emails and I have access to it on my phone, I'm going to use any moment I can to try and boost my productivity. That's the kind of person I am. So if you're that person, you need to take email off your phone. You need to go home and check your email and be productive there and just not think that you're going to be not productive in the Costco queue, right? So I'm not, again, I'm not prescribing one thing for everybody, but I think we have to acknowledge our limitations as well as try and change them because otherwise we can set ourselves up for disappointment, right? Yeah. Right. Well, for that person, I would say, you know, certainly I wouldn't tell someone who's been sober for a day to go into a bar and practice sure. impulse yeah, control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, so yeah, put the, put the phone in your trunk. 
Yeah. Right. As you're driving, if you know you're constantly checking, you know, God forbid, while you're driving. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many people, like I run pretty much every morning. And I yeah. can't tell you how many cars don't see me anymore. Yeah. Like right. they would, you know, give me a berth because I'm on a country road. There's never sure. another car coming. But now they're like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. And they'll, you know, they'll sort of like dive into a hedge or something. swerve over. Yeah. Um, you know, and the other thing is, okay, so I know like here's where, here's a moment where I, like maybe it's just out of line at Costco. Yeah. Something I do once a week. Like that's where I can practice, and the rest mm. of the time I'm not even going to bother trying to eliminate it until I've developed, you know, an experience of what it's like. Yeah. So to you know to yeah to absolutely take these small steps, mm -hmm. but recognize that the impulse is not necessarily the enemy. In fact, the impulse can be the salvation. Yeah. Well put. Absolutely. Mm. So I know you, uh, you're teaching uh, tech proof mm -hmm. uh, here and there for uh, for organizations and corporations. Is there any sort of public sure. Anything available or coming for my poor podcast listeners who want more now? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're trying to put the programs together for, for different groups um, so they're more available to individuals. Um, so if you're interested in finding out more about, um, about TechProof and where it comes from, um, you can go to www.stressproof.net and that talks about all of the kind of courses, StressProof, TechProof, the other ones that we offer. Um, and you can get more information on there about... Um, getting a workshop brought to you or your organization as well. Um, and if you're interested in the, the kind of the reasoning behind it and where kind of like the Marshall viewpoint comes from, you can look at ncsystema.com and you can uh, find either us if you're based in North Carolina or we can find refer you to somebody who might be in your area that will teach you Sistema, which is the martial art of awareness, essentially. Okay. Great. Yeah. And so, um, you know, if, if you're, is that mine or yours? I believe that's yours. Yeah. <laughs> I, I ignore you, smartphone. I'm yeah. podcasting. Mine switched off. Proof yeah, of concept. I don't know who is it. No, I'm not going to look. <laughs> oh, is it one o'clock yet? Uh, it is. <gasps> it's my call. I got to go. Right. There you go. All right. Talk to you later, everybody. Thanks very much. Well, that was pretty ironic that the uh, interview ended abruptly with me at the beck and call of my cell phone, although actually I was at the beck and call of my calendar. I just hadn't looked at the time because Glenn and I were having such a fun rollicking time as we generally do when we have conversations. So if you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support the mission of the show, the easiest, cheapest way to do that is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review there. For more information about WellStart Health, we're starting new cohorts pretty much uh, every two to three weeks at these days. Um, it's very exciting how our growth is accelerating. Check out wellstarthealth.com slash program to, you know, take control of your own health destiny. That's me and Josh. Uh, Kevin Davis from last week's call is one of the coaches. Sarah Bofinger, our Olympic hopeful in the uh, 2020 uh, Japan Olympics and the butterfly swimming uh, is one of our coaches, a whole bunch of other people that you either already know or will get to know. In short, a community of support and a community of people who have been where you are, who have made dramatic health improvements through daily actions, through clawing back from adversity. So if you're interested in joining with that kind of community to get your own health and wellness on track, wellstarthealth.com slash program. And I sure would appreciate if you would pass this on to other people that you know could use it. And especially if you have any contacts at companies, self-insured companies that are looking to reduce their healthcare spend and would like to do it not by giving people worse care, 
but making them require less care uh, so we can go in and help mitigate or reverse chronic disease in those populations. I would love an introduction to someone we could talk to to see if we can help. In garden news, it's well, the busiest time of the year right now. Things are going in the ground and requiring to be watered twice a day. This past weekend, Mia and I started putting up some deer proof fencing, which uh, seven and a half feet high, alas, is not rabbit proof or groundhog proof. So once we get that up, we're going to have to go back around with uh, low chicken wire. And I'm sure some of them will still find a way in, but at least we'll get to keep a little bit more of our produce. In running news, I uh, got the Umstead Half Marathon coming up this coming Sunday. It's during PPOD, the Plant-Based Prevention of Disease Conference. If you're going to be there in Raleigh on uh, May 18th, 20th to 22nd, I believe, or 18th to 20th, I can't remember, whatever the weekend is, uh, look me up. I'll be, I'll be there. I'll be around. Josh will be there. Olivia, Sarai, uh, Anthony Disson, all the, all the well-start uh, originals will we'll be meeting up there. And Dr. Sarai Stancic will be showing her documentary Code Blue on Monday morning. And that's in Raleigh, North Carolina. There's still seats available, I believe, if you want to check out preventionofdisease.org to sign yourself up. It's actually the cheapest, the least expensive of all of the plant-based health conferences out there. And if you come for that, you should sign up for the Umstead Half Marathon and help me uh, run this uh, ragged plantar fasciitis ridden body up and down the hills for 13.1 miles. I'd love to see you there. All right, time for thanks. Thanks, of course, to Will Ridenauer, the composer and player of Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, which you're hearing right now, and which is the theme music of Plant Yourself. Find more of his music at willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Nakadovsky, David Isaac, Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julian, Roland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ronnie Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Jeanette Benham, Gila Serre, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen. Michael Warabeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rudlitz, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rosalind, Ayat, Julie Lang, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzin, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Avivala L., Heather O'Connor, Callan Jensen. Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Dashwa Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Humble, Deb Casilla, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz. Ian Bishop, Bilberry Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Craner, Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullers, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, and Joan Borstein for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.
So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit. Send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show and it's free for everyone and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Strong Fronzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruthann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski, a plant powered for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Krep, Tritania Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leland. Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Cartson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>